You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On November 16th of 2012, a dispatcher would pick up a 911 emergency call in Lake County, Ohio, and everything that happened after that call was picked up would take everyone that came into contact with this case by surprise. On the other end of the line was a young girl who was in hysterics as she screamed into the phone and tried to express what was going on inside of her home. Finally, the dispatcher was able to deduct that the young girl on the phone was telling her that someone was killing her mother. As the case unraveled, there would be surprise after surprise and heartbreak after heartbreak. One of the worst things in the world that we can look into in the realm of true crime are cases like this one, when a parent succumbs to a child. This murder was gruesome, and the details continued to come out long after the crime and the crime scene were dealt with. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 105 of Gone But Never Forgotten. What could make a foster child murder their foster mother? The murder of Lisa Knofel by Sabrina Zunich. Lisa Marie McIntosh was born on May 2nd of 1971 in Reynoldsburg, Ohio to William Clark McIntosh and Rita Bala McIntosh, and she was living in Lake County, Ohio for the last 12 years of her life. Lisa was known by everyone in her life as a selfless person who seemed to put everything and everyone before herself. Lisa was married twice, and she had a daughter from her first marriage named Megan, who meant the entire world to her. Lisa would meet her second husband, a man named Kevin Knofel, and friends say that the two of them hit it off immediately, and their love story was incredible. It was like watching on to that fairy tale story that we all hear about and dream about. They were perfect for one another, and they were destined for one another as well. Kevin also had a son from a previous marriage named Cody. Friends and family would all say that Lisa and Kevin fit right into one another's lives perfectly. Kevin was a hard worker, working various jobs as a truck driver, a school bus driver, and even working as an emergency medical technician. Kevin was a jack-of-all-trades who did whatever he needed to do to help the family make ends meet. Lisa was incredibly dedicated to her job, working as a social worker. She mainly focused on working with children who had been the victim of physical and sexual abuse. She truly was what I call a salt-of-the-earth person, and her modus operandi in life seemed to be to help as many people as she possibly could, and she had always been like that. Lisa would give anyone the coat off her own back, and even before she had got together with Kevin, when she was still a single mom, she would take in foster children that needed help just so that she could help in any way possible. Lisa and Kevin would get married one year after they first met, 
And a year and a half after that, they were overjoyed to announce that they were having a child together, their daughter, Haley. And so, the family was fully blended with a son from Kevin, a daughter from Lisa, and a child that they shared. As over the moon as Lisa was with Haley, she still felt like the family was missing something. And so, two years after Haley was born, Lisa and Kevin would invite a 16-year-old foster daughter named Sabrina Zunich into their lives and into their home. At first, everything seemed to work out perfectly for everyone in the family. There are plenty of family photos that seem to show joy and love that abounded between all of the members of the family. But over time, things started to change slightly, and only with the benefit of hindsight can we start to piece together some of the reasons why. We will discuss those a little later in the episode. But Sabrina and Lisa started to butt heads around the house more, and both seemingly started to see one another as a little bit of a nuisance inside of the home. The addition of Sabrina to the home, regardless of which series of events you choose to believe regarding what comes next, would wind up being the thing that would completely tear this entire family apart. On November 16th of 2012, the entire world would change for Lisa, Kevin, Cody, Megan, Haley, and Sabrina. I am about to play a clip from the 911 call that came in when Megan called 911 and started to speak to the dispatcher. Listener discretion is advised, as this is obviously not for the faint at heart, as you're about to hear a young girl trying to get help for her mom, who was being attacked. As you heard, or didn't, if you chose not to listen to the clip, 
Megan calls 911, and immediately you can hear Lisa in the background screaming for someone to call 911. As one can only imagine, this poor young girl was frantic, and Lord knows what she had seen or heard by this point. All that she knew was that she had seen her foster sister, Sabrina, go into the room, and she was stabbing her mother, Lisa. Heartbreaking. This case gets more and more strange, but you certainly cannot help but to feel for young Megan here, as her entire life seemingly fell apart in an instant. Officer Randy Mullinax was the first officer to arrive at the scene, and one can only imagine that he had a rough idea of what he was headed into, but he certainly could not prepare himself for what he found. He said that when he arrived at the home, he found Megan at the front door, and she was beside herself, frantic and desperately begging for help for her mom, waving her arms for the officer to get into the house and quickly. Officer Molinax quickly found out that Kevin was away for work and that Megan, Sabrina, Lisa, and young Haley were the only people inside of the home. Officer Molinax said that he was trying to mentally prepare himself for what he was going to find on the other side of the door, but that there was nothing in his mind that came close to what was truly waiting for him. He said that he essentially walked into what looked like a war zone. As he made his way into the home, the first thing that he saw was Sabrina. 18-year-old Sabrina came out of the master bedroom, and she was still holding the knife in her hands that Megan had alerted the 911 dispatcher about. Officer Molinax said that Sabrina looked like she had literally taken a shower in blood. She was covered from head to toe. Randy ordered Sabrina down to the floor, and she complied. He quickly put handcuffs on her, and proceeded into the bedroom to see what he was going to be able to do in the situation. That is where he found Lisa, on the floor. Kevin said that when he looked at Lisa, she was so covered in blood that he couldn't even see the flesh tones of her body. Unfortunately, Officer Mullinex knew that he was already too late, and that Lisa had succumbed to her injuries. The coroner report would come back, and it was gruesome, just like the scene. The coroner had determined that Lisa had suffered at least 178 sharp force trauma injuries from at least 12 stab wounds and 166 cuts. All of the wounds, and of course the murder, were attributed to Sabrina. The weapon that was used in the assault and the murder was the very same knife that Sabrina had still been clutching when Officer Mullinax had entered the home and came across her. It was a 15-inch bread knife, the kind with a serrated blade to cut through bread or buns quickly and easily. The assault by Sabrina on Lisa was so vicious that the knife blade was bent at roughly 20-degree angle from the force that it had been used to stab Lisa. Sabrina, of course, was booked and in custody with the police, and the investigation began in earnest. There was, of course, no doubt as to who had committed the murder and how they had committed the murder. What needed to be discovered, however, was the motive behind it. Investigators needed to find out why Sabrina had attacked her foster mom so viciously and so callously, clearly with the sole intention of taking her life. In conversation with investigators, Sabrina seemed to be cooperative at first with what had happened leading up to the attack, but her explanation certainly didn't give them very many answers. Sabrina said that everyone else inside of the home was asleep, and she was awake because she was suffering from a massive headache. Sabrina said that she had gone into the master bedroom and the adjoining washroom because she was looking for ibuprofen for her headache. She said that after she arrived in the washroom, however, her mind and her memory went blank, and she did not remember anything that happened after that. 
Investigators believed that even though it seemed that Sabrina was being at least somewhat cooperative, they did not believe her story. They believed that there was no way that a person could stab and cut someone as many times as Sabrina had without having some sort of recollection of the attack and the murder. When investigators tried to press on and force Sabrina to either remember or tell them something that she was holding back, she put all conversation to an end when she said that she didn't want to speak anymore until she spoke with an attorney. Sabrina had a rough life, as you can imagine. As a general rule, most people do not wind up in the foster care system without some kind of a story. Sabrina's parents were both drug addicts, and they both ran afoul of the law many times, and as such, they were unable to care for Sabrina. Her grandmother had taken custody of her very early in her life at the age of three, but that situation fell apart as Sabrina got older, as her grandmother found out that Sabrina was stealing from her in order to pay for drugs and alcohol. When she was kicked out of her grandmother's home, that is when she first wound up in the juvenile system. In her own words, and you can understand partially why, Sabrina grew up incredibly damaged because even though some of her circumstances were definitely of her own doing, she had everyone that had ever been in her life essentially give up on her. Her parents were unable to pull themselves together and be a family, and she felt that her grandmother had turned her back on her as well because of her issues. She grew up with severe abandonment issues. Everything had seemed to turn around, though, for Sabrina when Lisa and Kevin had taken her into their home. The Knofel family embraced her, and she truly started to feel like she had a real family for the first time in her life. The changes in Sabrina's life were visible to everyone from the Knofels to her social workers. Her social workers even said that her grades went up and Sabrina was going to classes regularly, something that was not the norm for her before she moved in with the Knofels. It seemed like Sabrina had finally found the stability in her life that she had always wanted, and it was settling her life down. However, obviously there was a massive disconnect between what was seen as factual evidence that Sabrina was in a great place and the murder that had just taken place. When investigators started to speak to Sabrina's social workers, they were shocked with what was presented to them. They said that even though Sabrina was someone who had struggled mightily at times in her life, they had never seen this side of her before. They had never seen or heard anything violent from Sabrina at all. They believed that there absolutely must be more to the story than what everyone knew so far because they did not believe that they could have possibly miscategorized Sabrina that badly. Investigators were certainly surprised by the reports from Sabrina's social workers, but they also knew that they needed to lay back a little bit on the Knoffel family because obviously had they had just lost a mother and a wife, and the investigators didn't need to press on too quickly because they already knew that they had the killer in custody. As time went on, however, investigators did start to unravel a little bit more of the story. They found out that there had been a little bit of unrest and tension within the Knoffel home for some time leading up to the murder. That tension seemed to revolve around Sabrina and Kevin at the center of it. It seemed that Sabrina had started to get closer and closer with Kevin while pushing further and further away from Lisa. Sabrina was becoming what Lisa determined to be very needy with Kevin's time, and Lisa was also getting aggravated because she started to feel like Kevin was willing to drop everything for Sabrina. Investigators started to wonder if there was perhaps an infatuation that developed on Sabrina's part towards Kevin, and as they dug deeper, the evidence started to point that way. Investigators found a text from Lisa to Kevin that said, quote, Cut the damn cord. 
spending too much time with her and less with your real family. Thanks a lot, unquote. It appeared that Lisa and Kevin had reached some sort of breaking point as well because Kevin was seemingly not willing to walk away from the situation with Sabrina. Lisa had also told friends that Sabrina was starting to overstep with Haley as well, and that she had told Sabrina to stay away from Haley because she felt as though Sabrina was starting to try and act like a mother to the young girl, and Lisa felt like Sabrina was trying, in some respects, to replace her. One could certainly understand the tension that was happening within the family. This situation would certainly wear anyone thin. Investigators also found out that just two weeks before Lisa was murdered, Lisa had confronted Sabrina and told her that she was going to have to leave. It was believed by everyone that investigators spoke to that Sabrina would be very well aware that it was Lisa that was pushing for her to leave the family home, and that would have certainly been a trigger for Sabrina because she likely would have felt as though, once again, everyone was turning their backs on her and casting her to the curb. It appeared to investigators that this may have been the motive that they were looking for. Sabrina had been seemingly trying to step in and replace Lisa on some level, but Sabrina quickly realized that she was in fact the person in the family that was the easiest to remove. It was around this time that Sabrina finally decided that she needed to talk to investigators and tell them her side of the story. Sabrina's story was actually very similar to the story that investigators had pieced together when they were talking to everyone else that was close to the situation. Sabrina said that she had spent most of her life within the system and that she had never had a true family. She said that growing up, all she had ever wanted was a real family. People that cared about her and people that wanted her to have a better life and wanted to see her reach her full potential. She said that soon after moving in with the Knoffel family, she realized that, that that was her family. It was a dream come true, and she embraced them, and they embraced her as a part of their home. She said that in the beginning, she had gotten along with both Lisa and Kevin very well. She said that Kevin was a strong and caring family man that she felt like he didn't look at her and see someone that was living inside of his home, but rather he made her feel like she was one of his children. She said that Kevin had always made her feel like he wanted to see her succeed, and she felt that he genuinely cared for her. She also said that her and Lisa had a very good relationship in the beginning, and that Everyone seemed to be on the same page and happy. She said that over time, however, she started to see and feel a change from Lisa towards her. She felt like Lisa didn't see her as a true part of the family and that she would only ever see Sabrina as a foster child living in her home. Investigators could certainly see that that may be an underlying thing within the family dynamic given the text message that I mentioned earlier. Likely out of anger, Lisa was very clear with Kevin that he needed to stop turning his back on his, quote, real family for their, quote, foster daughter. Sabrina confirmed that Lisa had started to keep her away from Haley, and she also said that when the time came that Lisa had the conversation with her that she was going to have to leave the house, she said that Lisa was very blunt and felt that Lisa was rude to her in the way that she approached her. She felt like she was losing everything in her life again. Sabrina would also be much more open about the night that Lisa was murdered. Sabrina said that she had waited until everyone in the house was asleep and she had gone quietly to Lisa's room so that she would not disturb anyone, and she had the knife in her hand as she made her way there. She said that once she got into the room, she stood there, with Lisa still asleep, for about 10 to 15 minutes, arguing with herself in her head about whether she should kill Lisa or not. 
While she was having that internal battle, Lisa woke up and thought that it was Megan in her room. Sabrina heard Lisa say, Megan, go to bed. And when she heard Lisa's voice, Sabrina froze. When Sabrina didn't move, Lisa sat up in her bed, and that was when she realized that it was not Megan in the room, and it was in fact Sabrina, and she likely saw the knife. Sabrina knew that she had no choice at that point but to act. Sabrina sprung at Lisa and started to attack her. She said that in the process of the attack, she remembered hearing Lisa plead with her to stop, and she also remembered Megan coming into the room. She said that Megan had actually put a hand on her shoulder and told her to stop. Investigators realized that they seemed to have the story essentially right about everything that had gone on inside of the house and everything that had led up to Sabrina murdering Lisa. The story was heartbreaking. There's no denying that, but it was also understandable on some level. The wounds that Sabrina had developed through her time in the foster care system and having had essentially been dropped by her blood family twice made sense to investigators. They could certainly understand a little better the motive behind the vicious attack. Sabrina had felt as though Lisa was going to tear everything away from her that she loved, and because of that, Sabrina felt as though it was her or Lisa that needed to be dealt with. There was, however, more to the story that was about to come out, a twist that most of the investigators did not see coming. Sabrina said that the murder of Lisa was not entirely her fault. She told investigators that she certainly took responsibility for her crime because ultimately she was the person who had committed the act, but she said that there was another person that had led her to do what she had done. She said that she believed that she never would have attacked Lisa or murdered her if it wasn't for this other person. The other person that Sabrina said had played an intricate role in the murder of Lisa Knofel was Kevin Knofel. Sabrina told investigators that when she made the decision to kill Lisa, she was carrying out the actions that Kevin had told her to do. As shocking as that was when the words came out of Sabrina's mouth, investigators did start to see a correlation between what Sabrina was saying and what witnesses and friends and family of the Knofels had seen and shared as well, just not to the extent that Sabrina was explaining. Many people had said that they had seen proof that Kevin and Sabrina were getting closer, People had also said that they felt like Sabrina was inappropriate in the way that she acted around Kevin at times, flaunting and flirting, and obviously people had seen the rift that was starting to happen between Lisa and Sabrina. However, likely nobody was privy to what was actually happening, according to Sabrina. The realization that perhaps the inappropriate behavior was a two-way street. Sabrina said that what nobody else seemed to see or be aware of was the fact that things between Lisa and Kevin had gotten so bad that Kevin hated Lisa even more than Sabrina did. He had grown a deep disdain for Lisa, and that was the roots of where the relationship between Sabrina and Kevin had started. Sabrina said that Kevin had initially opened up to her through text messages, and he had told her that he wished that Lisa was dead. Kevin also allegedly told Sabrina that Lisa was worth far more to him dead than she was alive, because he had hundreds of thousands of dollars in life insurance coverage on her that would come to him if anything happened to her. That text and verbal relationship, however, was not the depths of things that were going on between Kevin and Sabrina. Sabrina told investigators that she and Kevin had been having a sexual relationship for the six to eight months that led up to Lisa's murder. The problem was that Sabrina had fallen in love with Kevin, and she said that she would do anything for love. So, everything that investigators had uncovered, believing that the motive for Sabrina was having a family, was correct, but on an entirely different level, if everything that Sabrina was saying was true, and for what it was worth, 
Investigators did believe Sabrina. Everything that she said stayed static every time she was interviewed. There was no hesitation. There was no changes in her story. And investigators started to operate under the belief that Kevin had groomed Sabrina. You see, Kevin knew all of Sabrina's past, and that meant that he knew all of her insecurities and all of her dreams. He knew that more than anything in the world, Sabrina wanted to have a family of her own, and he knew that he could at least present to her everything that she could ever have wanted. Sabrina said that Kevin had told her that if Lisa was out of the picture, they could move away, get a home together of their own, and he even told her that she could take over from Lisa as the mother to Megan and Haley. Sabrina would also tell investigators that it wasn't just these passing conversations that the two would have about killing Lisa. It wasn't just a turn of phrase that came up once or twice. She said that she and Kevin had talked at great length about how to kill her. First, they had talked about shooting Lisa, and then they had even talked about the idea of hiring a hitman to murder her. And finally, they had settled on what happened the night that Lisa had her life taken. They talked about Sabrina stabbing Lisa to death in her sleep. Even the knife that Sabrina had used, she said, was Kevin's idea. She said that Kevin had told her to use the bread knife because the serrated edge would do more damage to Lisa on the inside and outside. Kevin had even told Sabrina that she should steal Lisa's wedding ring and some of her jewelry after the murder to make it seem as though it was a part of a break-in that had gone too far. Now, I said that some of the investigators believed the things that Sabrina was saying because they could see the correlation between her words and the evidence that they had uncovered. They certainly could line up the series of events that they thought led up to the murder and the story that Sabrina was sharing. There were certainly a lot of similarities and even proof as to why things started to degrade between Sabrina and Lisa and even between Kevin and Lisa. However, when word started to spread that Sabrina was pointing her finger at Kevin as being part of the crime, people in the community and those closest to Kevin and Lisa believed that Sabrina was just trying to save her own hide. You can't be shocked to find out that the news shook people to their core. Here you have a story where a foster daughter killed her foster mother, someone that had taken her into her home willingly and into her family. That is shocking enough. But to find out that there was even a small chance that Kevin might have played a part in this murder, that brought this story to an entirely new level of insanity. Remember we're talking about the same Kevin and Lisa that everyone believed were soulmates from the very first time that they met. Could the man in that relationship possibly have been having an affair with Sabrina, a young girl who was in his care and under his own roof? Most of the family believe that none of this was true and still believe that to this very day. The belief is that Kevin would have never played any part in the plot to kill his beloved wife. One thing I found interesting, though, as I conducted the research for this case, is that the same people who believe that Kevin is innocent were the same people who said that they saw Sabrina acting inappropriate towards Kevin at times. I can't help but wonder if that is simply a matter of maturity, being different between a grown adult man and a 17-year-old girl. I don't think it would be impossible to say that while Kevin was able to separate his two relationships in his life to some extent, that would be much more difficult for a young girl to do when she was head over heels in love and so close to what would amount to achieving her dreams of having her very own family. Those that believed that Sabrina was simply a pathological liar on top of a killer believed that this was simply a case of Sabrina and her attorneys coming forward with a new series of events so that she could perhaps make a plea deal 
if anyone believed the story. By throwing Kevin under the bus, they believed that the end game was for Sabrina to cut down on her own prison time by possibly testifying against Kevin. The problem, though, was that Sabrina was not even slightly trying to downplay the fact that she was guilty. She knew that she had physically committed the crime and was very willing to do the prison time. The story jived in particular for Officer Mullinex, the first officer on the scene, because he admitted that early on in the investigation he had become a little suspicious of Kevin for a few reasons. First, a couple of weeks after Lisa's murder, when investigators reached out to Kevin for an interview so that they could continue to gather information, Kevin did come into the office, but he came in with an attorney and said that he would only answer questions about Lisa's job and he would not answer any questions about the murder whatsoever. I should mention that at that point Kevin was not a suspect on any level. This was meant to simply be an interview of a family member to help with the investigation. The second thing that raised Officer Mullinax's suspicions was the fact that Kevin had started to file claims on life insurance policies that were out on Lisa very quickly after he found out that his wife was murdered. Now, when I say quickly, I'm not talking about a week or even days later. Kevin started to file claims within hours of finding out about what had happened to Lisa. Family and Kevin's lawyers would later say that Kevin was being judged for actions after a devastating loss, and that Kevin knew that he needed to think about the stability of his family. They said that Kevin was being judged and told that his reactions and grief were wrong, and that nobody should be judged for how they deal with a situation like this one. I do understand that, but there are a few things wrong with that defense, so to speak. First off, I don't think that I've ever heard of anyone filing a claim on a life insurance policy mere hours after a murder. Second, how much was Kevin looking after the short-term stability of his family when he started to spend that money? And he spent that money on cars, a travel camper, and remodeling of his home, including an installation of a swimming pool. That money was being looked for rather quickly and spent rather quickly and not on things that I would think of first when I was trying to ensure that I had enough income to look after myself and my children. So yes, count me among the people that judge Kevin for the optics of what he did when he tragically lost his wife. Three months after Sabrina first told investigators her side of the story, and about how Kevin was involved, Kevin would be arrested and charged with plotting a murder. Sabrina agreed to testify against Kevin on behalf of the state when the trial came, and in exchange for that, the prosecution against Sabrina agreed to recommend to the judge that she be given a window of time served where she would be eligible for parole rather than be given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. To be honest, that's not that much of a plea deal in my eyes. In Canada, most of us think of Carla Homolka, of the Ken and Barbie killers, when we think of a plea deal. Today, Carla Homolka is living a full life outside of prison because she found a way to play the system. There were no guarantees for Sabrina that she was going to get anything for being a star witness against Kevin, and yet she willingly was. That is something that makes me think that there is a lot of credibility to what she was saying. Kevin would go to trial and be charged with complicity and conspiracy to commit aggravated murder, as well as sexual battery for the relationship that he had allegedly had with Sabrina, who was under the age of 18, and also in his care as a foster parent at the time of the relationship. For what it's worth, Kevin denied everything that Sabrina said. He denied that the two had a sexual relationship, and he denied that he had ever spoke to Sabrina about killing Lisa. The stance of Kevin and his legal team and everyone that believed in him 
was that the entire case against him was based on the word of the person that everyone already knew had stabbed Lisa to death. The prosecution was obviously aware of that, and they built their case around two things. First, they needed to show enough circumstantial evidence to corroborate that what Sabrina was going to testify to was even possible, because they didn't have too much in terms of concrete evidence. And second, they needed to work incredibly hard to get the jury to believe the words of a killer above all else in order to get a guilty verdict against Kevin Knofel. Sabrina's school principal was called to the stand, and he would testify that he had seen Sabrina and Kevin together, and on one occasion he had witnessed Sabrina maneuvering herself and sitting between Kevin's legs in what was clearly an intimate position. Sabrina's social worker and case manager testified that approximately one month before Lisa's murder, Kevin had called her to have a discussion. Kevin told her that he and Lisa were possibly going to get a divorce, and he wanted to know if there was any way that he could keep Sabrina in his care if that divorce happened. He believed that Sabrina would be mandated to stay with Lisa, and he wanted to avoid that, if at all possible. One of the things that the prosecution also presented as damning was the cell phone activity that took place between Kevin and Lisa, and comparatively between Kevin and Sabrina, for the two weeks before the deadly attack. Kevin and Lisa had texted or called back and forth 201 times, whilst Kevin and Sabrina had texted or called one another 1,491 times. That's more than seven times more contact between a married man and a young woman compared to the woman that he was married to. Also, in the five hours before Sabrina attacked Lisa, she and Kevin had texted or called one another 78 times. Regardless of what you believe Kevin did or did not do, in my opinion, that is the sign of a weird relationship, regardless of what relationship was had between a man and essentially his child. Finally, to prove that everyone that was close to the family was not of the belief that there was nothing strange afoot, one of Kevin's closest friends would testify that Kevin was desperate to get in touch with Sabrina in some way the day after the murder took place. The friend would state on the stand that Kevin told him that he needed to see Sabrina, and he needed to tell Sabrina that he was still going to be there for her and that she was not alone. All of that after knowing that she had killed his wife in cold blood less than 24 hours earlier. If that's not damning, I don't know what would be. And then Sabrina took the stand. Sabrina would testify that the knife was used 178 times and that the murder was so violent because she was manipulated by Kevin to believe that all that was between her and her dream was Lisa. So, she attacked Lisa, knowing that the only result that would bring that change in her life was if she knew that Lisa was dead. She knew that she could not stop the attack until the end result was realized, or things would certainly be worse and not better. Sabrina said that Kevin and Lisa had a massive fight, and that Kevin told her that he was going to kill himself if Lisa wasn't dead, because he couldn't handle things with her anymore. Sabrina said that that was a massive reason that she decided to take things into her own hands. She couldn't bear losing Kevin and being left with Lisa. This man absolutely manipulated and weaponized a young, impressionable person who he knew was infatuated with him. In an attempt to try and break Sabrina down, and perhaps make her lose her cool, the defense team presented the knife in court and talked about exactly how vicious the attack had been in order to bend the knife in that 20 degree angle. The goal was clearly to try and prove that the bend in the knife showed that the murder was a result of Sabrina's anger and not because of manipulation from Kevin. One of Sabrina's friends would also take to the stand, and she would testify that she had first-hand knowledge 
that there was a plan in place to kill Lisa. She said that Sabrina had called her because she knew that she had connections to some people who could possibly carry out a hit. The friend said on the stand that she had heard Kevin talking to Sabrina in the background, leading Sabrina in the conversation, and she also said that Sabrina had even said that she would help pay for the hit by selling drugs. Ultimately, the friend had told Sabrina that she didn't want anything to do with a murder plot, and she had bailed out. Interestingly, while investigators were trying to gather evidence against Kevin, they had this same friend call him one-on-one to talk to him. She would bring up on the phone call that she was nervous because she didn't want her name brought up because they had talked about the hit at one point. Kevin was calm on the call and didn't even seem shocked at all by the conversation. He was nothing on that call like a man who didn't know what the friend was talking about. When she said that she was nervous that Sabrina would bring up her name, Kevin simply said casually that Sabrina had said a lot of things out of anger and that he wasn't sure that it didn't matter. You would think that if someone called to talk to you about a potential hit that was set up and you had no idea what they were talking about, you might be shocked or, you know, you might tell that person to call the police and tell them about whatever she was talking about. Another misstep by Kevin here, and frankly, I have to wonder if he was hoping that he could strike up a new relationship with a new young woman. Weird stuff, for sure. In the end, the jury believed Sabrina's testimony and the evidence that pointed to her story being truthful. In less than 10 hours, the jury would return from deliberations with a guilty charge on all counts against Kevin and he was sentenced to life in prison with the chance of parole after 30 years. Presently, Kevin is serving his time at the Lake Erie Correctional Institution. He will first be eligible for parole in the year 2043 at the age of 73. He is also listed as a Tier 3 sex offender. Sabrina would sign a written plea agreement that said that she was guilty of aggravated murder and the death of Lisa Knofel. Sabrina would receive an identical sentence to Kevin's in the end after the judge agreed to give her the possibility of parole after 30 years. That, of course, was recommended by the state in return for her testimony. At her sentencing hearing, Sabrina would say, quote, I want to say how sorry I am for all those I hurt. Lisa did not deserve what happened to her. I ask for forgiveness be given to me, not for my benefit, but for those who need the healing process to begin. I can't explain how much remorse I have and how much sadness I deal with. Unquote. The judge told Sabrina that the only reason she was being given that possibility of parole was because of her cooperation with investigators. The judge also said that while she was manipulated and used, her crime was well beyond manipulation. And he said that aggravated murder is still aggravated murder. This was not death by one blow or one single act. However, it was a continued and sustained assault that led to murder. Sabrina will be eligible for parole in 2042 when she is 47 years old. Presently, she's serving her time at the Dayton Correctional Institution, a state prison for women in Ohio. This one is a story of so much hope and so much love, seemingly, that turned into a story of so much heartbreak, loss of life, and destruction. Children were left here without a mother, a father, and a sister. Sabrina was seemingly groomed and weaponized by a man that was supposedly cared about her deeply and a man who seemed to have only one motive, to be rid of his wife and to receive the life insurance money. Two people are behind bars for 30 years to life and, of course, one life, that of Lisa, was taken from this world far too early, regardless of how you feel about the guilt of Sabrina or of Kevin. 
I could really go off about this case to no end, and I'm sure that there are those of you listening who could go off on me for presenting this case the way that I have. However, from where I sit, a man knew how to use and abuse infatuation from a much younger person who had already had a rough life. He saw a means to an end, and he used it. Personally, my heart is broken for a young woman who seemed to be trying to get her life on the right track. Her life was also ruined. Was Sabrina guilty? Yes, of course she was. As she said, in the end, she wielded the weapon, and she did no, she did no better but she was driven by a force that was at least equally guilty in this case, and they are both fittingly going to serve the same prison sentence. With this case, perhaps more than any other case I've covered, I would love to hear your thoughts and your opinions. Do you think that Kevin was guilty in this case, or do you think that an innocent man will be in prison for at least 30 years now? Do you perhaps think that Sabrina should have been shown more leniency because of the way that Kevin took advantage of her? Where do you stand with everything in this case? Join me on social media and please let me know. No matter what you choose to believe, though, it seems perhaps one of the scariest things about this case is that two people here were found guilty of being involved in murder and the people that were closest to both of them believed that the guilty parties are not capable of the things that they were charged and convicted of. Often we see patterns and we see a a descent into violent crimes. This time, however, it appears that Kevin and Sabrina and their crimes came out of left field. Anyone is capable of anything. Chime in on our socials and let me know how all of that makes you feel as well. And honestly, more than ever, let me end this episode with an impassioned plea for each and every one of us goners to be a light in the world around us and for each and every one of us to be better. Thank you for giving me some of your time and thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. I'll see you next time.